Welcome to the Your Purpose is Calling podcast, conversations with Christians who are finding purpose, redefining work, and changing their world. I'm your host, Don Sadler. Have you ever felt like an imposter? As though your past disqualifies you for success? If so, then you definitely want to stay tuned to hear from my guest today, Ron Kitchens. Ron is the Senior Partner and Chief Executive Officer of Southwest Michigan First, an economic consulting firm. He's a publisher, a board member, a chairman, and the founder of the leadership conference Catalyst University and the co-founder of Next, an invitation-only leadership symposium for global economic development leaders. It's not exactly the resume you'd expect from a kid who grew up dirt poor, relying on the local church for food donations. In this episode, Ron talks about how he hid his difficult past for decades, trying to be something he wasn't. And he'll share the unlikely story of how a can of mandarin oranges changed the course of his life. It's an incredible story, and I can't wait to share it with you. You can access the show notes for today's episode, including where to find Ron online at donsadler.com slash zero two nine. The Your Purpose is Calling podcast is brought to you by Avada Christian Coaching. We give business owners, career professionals, and ministry leaders the tools they need to create vision, commit to action, and conquer their goals to walk in their calling with clarity and confidence. Sign up for our free weekly coaching emails at avadacoaching.com slash subscribe. And now, let's meet Ron. Hi, Ron. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dawn. Thanks for having me. I am so excited about your story. We had a chance to connect a couple of months ago, and it's just the most incredible story. Um, and we're going to be diving in. And I believe it's a powerful testimony that is really going to bless our listeners. But um, before we get to all of that, uh, do me a favor and just take a moment and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I'm Ron Kitchens. I uh, am with a group called Southwest Michigan First, which is a odd name for what we do, but it's who we are. The uh, So we're a, um, we began our life as a regional economic development group who believes that the greatest force for change is a job. Um, we've now morphed into an organization of 34 people who um, do leadership development all over North America. We have about 300 client communities uh, that we work with on growing and developing their capacity to create jobs. We host um, leadership conferences and um, work with companies on growing their impact. We publish um, a magazine called 269. And uh, gosh, we do a whole bunch of other kind of things. But um, really, we're a, um, we want to be uh, miracle grow for your organization, whether that's faith-based, not-for-profit, uh, local government, um, you know, or um, or kind of those big startups that we work with a lot of um, millennials that have good ideas that want to change the world. That's brilliant. Now, I know that you have a, a background when you were growing up that we're going to jump to in a little bit. But before we do that, tell us a little bit more about your professional background. What were you doing before you came to this? Work? So I um, so I grew up in abject poverty and I uh, 
I couldn't afford to go to college. And so I, uh, funny, I had a, a person who became a great mentor who I didn't know well at the time who said, let me, let me tell you what your future is. I had intended to play college football and um, got injured. And so there was going to be no football and there was going to be no scholarship. And so I said, let me tell you your future. You're going to go to college. You're going to be broke. You have no margin. And um, you're going, something's going to happen with your car. And so you're going to get a bank loan to either get a better car or to fix your car. And then you're going to have to take fewer hours of school because you got to pay off your loan. Then you're going to take a semester off. Then you're going to get some local girl pregnant and you're going to quit school and you're going to be the most popular guy 10 years from now on the assembly line at the fan factory on the edge of town. He said, but it doesn't have to be that way. So a group of uh, mentors, men who I none of them I knew well, came around me and I went into business. So they funded me, mentored me, uh, helped me start what ended up being a chain of convenience stores and um, was successful by all those metrics. But, you know, really discovered that I needed something more, that just making a profit wasn't enough. And so I just paid off the 14th loan I had on the business and I was bragging, to, uh, bragging's the wrong word, I was expressing to my banker that um, how happy I was because how many more people I was going to be able to hire. And he said, you know, you care more about people, hiring people, than you do about making a profit. And I said, finally, you get me. And, and he said, I didn't mean that as a compliment. We have to find something different from you, for you because you're going to leverage to the point that the economy will go bad or you'll have a bad deal. And everybody will lose their jobs. And we have to find something different. So that's where I began my journey of understanding that I'm really put here on this earth to work with companies, to work with organizations, to grow and create as many jobs as possible. So I've been able to work on more than 100 startups and grow, starting, growing, developing companies. We've uh, owned and operate multiple companies today. I sit on the boards of directors of companies large and small, but you know my mission is that um, the people have jobs because growing up, you know, in poverty, I knew that the people who had what my family didn't have all had one thing in common: they all had jobs that they could depend on, that were regularly paying, and that they could build their life around. I think it's so interesting because looking at your, um, you know, looking at your bio and knowing some of the things that you have accomplished in your life professionally, I think from somebody looking in from the outside, it would really be easy to believe that you had every single advantage, that everything was given to you, that it was handed to you. And um, I think that's part of what makes your testimony so powerful is, as you said, you grew up with every disadvantage, right? Tell us a little yeah. bit more about that. So I'm a, I'm kind of that classic story that people like to write off. Mm. You know, uh, my parents both um, left school in the eighth grade. Um, my father was illiterate, um, had to take his driver's license out to be able to write his name down. Um, my mother, um, they were married when my mother was 14 and my father 15. And, um, and as happens in those stories, I came along you know, less than a year later. And um, my father was killed in an industrial accident when I was four. The sign clearly said, don't do this. But if you can't read the sign, 
then it's meaningless. And he mm -hmm. suffered from the same form of dyslexia that I have. Um, but because I had uh, some people that poured into my life early on, they didn't diagnose the dyslexia, but they helped me figure workarounds. And, um, and so, you know, we grew up in that typical environment where you're running from, you know, the, the bill collectors or the rent. And I went to 13 different um, schools before the sixth grade, three different uh, kindergartens. And so it, you know, it's easy to believe that, you know, those are the people we write off in the world. But as I look back in my life, it was men and women who stepped into voids that um, really changed my life and impacted my trajectory. I love the part of your story where a simple can of mandarin oranges, which seems like something, a sort of an everyday item, it was a can of mandarin oranges that really began to turn everything around in your life, right? Tell us about um, that. I, not, many, not many years, two or three years after my dad died, um, a group of men um, from a church we didn't attend, and I, I don't think I'd ever been in a church at that point in my life, these group of three men showed up with a Chiquita banana box. So if, you're, if the listeners can envision that, they're big, thick cardboard, heavy wax on them, and a top and a bottom on this box. And they showed up carrying this box. Well, when you're poor, no, nobody knocking on your door that you don't know is ever a good thing. You just don't answer the door. And um, so my brother and I hid mm -hmm. And watched through the curtains as these three men knocked on the door and they left the box on our, our doorstep. And um, and as soon as they pulled away, and I can still see the white Ford Econoline van that they were driving, and, and they pulled away, and my brother John and I ran out. We got this box and we carried it in, took the top off of it. And I can remember, uh, I've got goosebumps now thinking about it. There's a, a frozen turkey in there, and there's a canned ham and mashed powdered mashed potatoes, instant mashed potatoes, and instant, you know, stuffing, and a can of cranberry sauce, green cans of green beans, and a can of mandarin oranges. When the Ozark Mountains in the 1970s, tropical fruit, whether it was fresh or canned, was something really rare and special to be kind of saved. And the truth is, I, I don't think any of us knew what to do with a can of oranges. We probably never tasted them. And so, they, but they went into the cabinet of our little house and, and in every kind of house that followed that. And as I mentioned, when you're poor, you know, you're always moving. And when, you know, there's a hierarchy to what gets taken. So, you know, you always take the paperwork to prove that you qualify for government assistance and then you take the food, and then maybe you have room to take clothes, but you never take books and you never take um, toys because there's never room and they'll poke holes in the in the bags that you're carrying them in. So, but that can of manor and oranges always traveled with us, no matter where we moved, because it become my safety blanket, I guess you could say. It was what reminded me that people loved me. And in the times when I was scared and vulnerable and didn't know what was going on in the chaos of my life, that can of mandarin oranges became 
that symbol that I didn't know who they were and I didn't know why they cared, but that somebody loved us. And as happens with canned fruits and vegetables, the uh, the can got swollen and and had my mom threw it out. And I remember it being a hole in my soul and lamenting about this can and how important it was. So not long after that, apparently times were a little better. My mom brought home a can of these oranges. And when I went to put them in the cabinet, she said, no, 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 I want you to go put those on your, your desk. Well, I didn't really have a desk. What I had was an old metal TV tray that I'm sure I found in a trash pile somewhere that I drug home because the other kids at school had desks that they talked about and I wanted a desk. So they should go put that can on your desk as a reminder of the cost of a lack of education. There's a can of mandarin oranges in my desk today. There's been a can of mandarin oranges in my mm. desk for now, oh, let's see, over 40 years, 45 years. In every desk I've ever had, I own three desks today. There's a can in each of those. When somebody comes to work for us on our team, the first week of work, I sat down with them, give them a can of mandarin oranges, and I tell that story. Not because any longer it represents my quest for education or even my responsibility to my daughter for her education. She's well-educated and thriving in New York City. But now it's my responsibility as a leader to love others. Unqualified love of people I don't know, who I don't know their story. Mm -hmm. I'm not called to know their story. I'm called to love them. I'm called to represent you know, my faith and my God in giving those gifts. My wife and I have donated tens of thousands of cans of mandarin oranges to food pantries around the country. But it really is this idea hmm. that it's become a symbol of both my blessings and my responsibilities. I mentioned we do le large leadership conferences and the colors of those conferences are always orange because it's a reflective of, again, reminding me, we don't just do that because it's part of our business. We do it because mm. it's my responsibility to lift up and love others. And uh, and it really is a cornerstone of who I am. And it was three men from a church we didn't attend, um, really representing a God we didn't know. Hmm. I love what you say about the. it's both a blessing and a responsibility. I love the... Um, just the, the power of that and the intentionality of that. Um, at what point did you get saved in your story? Um, how old were you and how did that come about? So um, that's a kind of another funny story. The, um, so like I said, we moved from house to house. And one of the little houses we had moved to was um, an old farmhouse on a dairy farm. And the, the, the dairy farmer had built a new house and was renting us this little teeny old farmhouse. And he showed up on the door one day, a guy's name's Francis Countryman. And he was a dairy farmer and had a little carpentry business and always wore striped overalls in a white shirt. So Mr. Countryman showed up on our door and I heard him speaking to my mom and said, well, I, I noticed your family doesn't attend church on Sunday and I'd like to invite you to attend mine. Now, Mr. Countryman was 
in his 60s then. He already had grandkids. There was no driver for him. He wasn't lonely, but he knew he was called to invite us to his church. And my mom said, thanked him and said, no, it's just not something we're interested in. And that's when my luck changed. Because Mr. Countryman said, well, I can understand that, but how about your sons? Could I come pick them up on Sunday mornings? Well, my mom's a smart woman and knew that if he came and got us, she could sleep in later (laughs) on Sunday mornings. And so she said, absolutely, please come get them. So for several years, Mr. Countryman showed up, no matter what house we moved into, no matter you know what the, our environment was, Mr. Countryman would show up or arrange for somebody from the church to come get us and take us to Sunday, to Sunday school, would talk about our lessons with us after church to make sure we understood the Sunday school lessons. It was Mr. Countryman who bought me the first brand new shirt I ever remember having, a little white. Um, shirt that I was baptized in that I marched into the Finley River on and was baptized. And uh, it was him that, you know, took me to lunch after that. And that was, um, you know, there's a, there's a, the idea of we're all priesthoods of the believers. We all have a responsibility to, to nurture and minister to each other. And it truly is when I think about that responsibility, it was this old Derek Farmer who life had beaten down with bow legs and, you know, a sore back who um, took two little boys to church and held their hands as we walked in and were baptized and, uh, and made all the difference in my life. Mm. That's such a powerful story. And it's such a, such an encouragement to anybody who, you know, is just, who feels compelled to just, you know, reach out to someone and maybe they don't know why. And we never know when we do that, the impact that can have in somebody's life. Um, but I know that in your own life that changed, that changed everything. everything, It was, um, I, you know, based on, you know, my life beyond that, um, I don't know that I would have ever, it would have been, um, in adulthood before I would have ever probably entered a church. Um, because it just wasn't something that was a factor in my family's life, you know, and, and it's Mr. Countryman who paid for my brother and I to go to church camp every summer. Um, and, uh, you know, without him and the, you know, the members of the Mount Zion Baptist church, you know, in Ozark, Missouri, I, uh, I don't know that I would have found my, my savior. Hmm. Um, I want to jump forward from that moment um, and sort of fast forward. You are, you're a businessman now. You, you've hit um, a, a great milestone in that you've achieved a lot of business success before you even turn 40. But um, coming from the background that you had, which probably looked a lot uh, different than some of your contemporaries, did you have any sort of imposter syndrome or just kind of feeling like, you know, were you really open about your background? Was that something you kept hidden? Talk to me a little bit about that. No. So I was, I was scared to death. I um, was having debilitating fear because the more you achieve, the more environments you're in that take you farther from those achievements. So I, um, I can remember being in a, a, a United Way board meeting 
and a uh, the discussion came up about whether to do holiday food baskets, and um, and they were going to do away with them. They had been funding you know three or four hundred of these, and um, in not having the courage to say, let me tell you about how one of those baskets changed my life, and um, mm-hmm. and I couldn't sleep for a couple of days thinking about it. And I ended up calling a special meeting and telling the uh, the board members about those baskets and how embarrassed I was for not speaking up. And I remember people being kind and they decided to continue it. But I also felt this overwhelming um, sense of judgment. It was probably self-inflicted. I, they were very kind people. Clearly they were cared about their fellow man, but that was at age 30 or so. So by the time I got to 40, I had done everything I could to mask my past and was terrified that people mm. would find out that, you know, I mentioned that when you move a lot, you leave the clo- you leave your clothes. So I figured out that, um, and a lot of times you don't have the ability to wash the clothes you have because you're sleeping in a car or you're sleeping on somebody's floor. And so I figured out that I could go shopping in the Goodwill box. So you could find a grocery, at that time, you could always find a grocery store that had a great big Goodwill donation box in the parking lot. And so I would go climb inside of these boxes and find clothes for my brother and I and, um, and bring them home till we could, you know, get new clothes. And so, you know, I grew up terrified that people would find that or terrified that they'd find out that I had a, learning disability because of my dyslexia and, you know, terrified that, that I wasn't perfect. I didn't have what I perceived as their highlight reel of success. And that if people found out who I was, that they would, they would judge me and I would lose it all. And, um, and it was getting to the point that it was debilitating. And so I, uh, I happened to be in New York on business and, I went to see the show Wicked, the play Wicked, and I'd never been to a Broadway play before. Um, I don't know. I only picked it because I had time to kill and a friend's wife had said that they had just been there and how incredible it was. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go see a show about the Wizard of Oz. All right. So I bought a ticket and because I bought a single, (laughs) I had this great ticket, the kind of third or fourth row and by the time they get to the first intermission, I am in tears. Not, not, oh, it's a newborn baby tears. Not a, you know, your, your, you know, your friend died tears. I am in ugly tears. You know, if I'd had mascara, it would have been down about around my chin by that point. It was, I was, I was sobbing in his deep because I realized that I was the green witch. But I was Elphaba. I was the person that got judged for who the world perceived them to be, not for who I was. And then I didn't want to live in fear. I didn't want to live in trying to fit in if I couldn't be authentically me. And so I, uh, I got one of the great blessings was the very next week I um, was scheduled for a three-day men's um, faith-based retreat called the Walk to Emmaus. And as part of that, um, I was asked to give 
my testimony. And, um, and I told the story of the can of mandarin oranges. I never told anybody in the world. My wife did not know why I kept the can of mandarin oranges. I just never had, I never had the courage to tell anybody that because it just felt so raw and so painful. And I just didn't trust that the world would love me if they knew that these things about me. And what I found by telling that story, it not only Mm -hmm. gave me freedom, it was this unbelievable lifting of this burden but my success has multiplied multiple times over it um the impact i've had in people's lives i uh, i got to speak a few weeks ago to a, a group of college football players and i talked about my dyslexia and how i c- nearly didn't graduate from college because of it because i couldn't tell anybody i had it because i was afraid they would put me in the dumb class you know and i didn't want to be and i never told anybody in high school that I was having trouble, um, I would just look like a goofball rather than be able to tell people because I was afraid I was going to be put in the special ed class. And the ju- I couldn't handle the judgment of that. Well, afterwards, I had this young man who's six foot, mm. you know, seven, 300 plus pounds crying in the hallway, sobbing because he, that was his exact story. And he had never had courage to talk about it and happened to know that I was friends with the head football coaches, how I got there. And, uh, and so we went into the coach's office and we talked about what his new plan had to be. And there were so many services for that and so many opportunities to serve him. But if I didn't have the courage to tell that story, maybe he never has the ability to graduate from college or he fails at repeat, 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 or he becomes my father and he's killed in an industrial accident because he can't read a sign. So, but this, uh, but this fear, this imposter syndrome, and now that I tell those stories, people regularly come up and want to tell me about theirs. There's a whole lot of us feeling inadequate out there. I love that. I love, I love so much of that and all of that actually. But I think, you know, just to really drive home the idea that, you know, you were sort of not faking your way, your business was real, but you were hiding behind this mask in your business. And although you had had some success, it was nothing compared to the success that you had in your business. Um, once you were, brave enough and authentic enough to say, here's my story and your impact in the places that you're called to influence in business and everywhere, um, multiplied infinitely as well. Right. Absolutely. And it, 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 part of it is me allowing myself to be that, um, to have the impact and be called into those areas. And part of it is people's, um, desire to be around unique and truly authentic leaders that, you know, you know, we may like Photoshop on the Photoshopping on models on the cover of magazines, but we really don't want to be around people who have a Photoshopped life, but that's hard to believe when you're the one who's imperfect. And, and and so getting past that fear is really life giving. Hmm. I love that. Um, 
What I also love about your story, and we had a chance to talk about this when we connected a couple months ago, and I think it's a really powerful part of your testimony, is that nobody can come to you with any excuses, right? Like the guy who's like, I don't have a four-year degree. I don't have any future. And and, And you're able to share your story and say, listen, if God can do this in my life, um, you know, there's just no, do you, do you find that you just kind of say there's no excuses allowed, like get on with your life? Sort of like that person said to you that, you know, your life doesn't have to be this way. How do you, how do you have those relationships now with, um, with your history and your own story? We do. And, um, I serve as a trustee of Western Michigan university, which is a, uh, state university in, in Michigan, and we have about 24,000 students. And so I get to interact with a lot of students. I get to interact with a lot of um, recent graduates because of our business, uh, of a lot of leaders from all over the country. And people will come to us um, really in two kind of places. One, I can't, I'm never going to be anybody because of X. And, uh, and that, you know, I don't, I have patience, but I don't have much patience of, no, let's find, let's find a path <laughs> for success that who you were yeah. won't define who you are to be. And we've got oh, to find what that looks like. And, um, you know, this dyslexia is one of those things It's you know, Richard Branson has kind of made dyslexia sexy, you know, cause he talks about it all the time and how <laughs> it made him, but when we look through history, there are lots of people who've had it. It's just a different learning style. And so don't use that as an excuse or I came from poverty. Well, take the opportunity to learn. You know, when I, I, I you know, I'll be real honest. I uh, probably have learned more by reading the um, wedding announcement section in the New York Times about life and living your life than any other area that I know. Because when I, you know, I'm from a very small place and I happened to be on a field trip with the FFA, the Future Farmers of America, when I was in high school and we went to a college campus and I found my way into the library and went and had all these magazines and newspapers I'd never seen and had a Sunday New York Times. And I discovered the wedding announcements And you can read about people's lives and who they are and where they went to school and what decisions they made and what jobs came of that. Well, I had no idea when you're from a small town what somebody majors in in college to be an investment banker. But you could see that. And you could see about what people did in their life and how they achieved it. And so that excuse of I don't know um, there's no there's no way to have that when you have all the knowledge of the world in, on your phone in your pocket. But you've got to take ownership of that. And then, you know, the areas that, you know, that you're meant to serve on, um, you know, we get too many people who get, I, it's fear. They don't know what they want. So they then don't know how to measure success. And so, you know, I, there used to be a TV show, I guess it still exists and reruns somewhere, Scandal. And the main character, Olivia Pope, would ask the same question at the beginning of all the early episodes. What do you want? And then, and her clients could never tell her what they wanted. They could tell her right. their pain. They could tell her a problem, but they couldn't tell mm-hmm. her what the outcome was. 
And too many of us in our own lives can't tell you what success looks like, can't tell you what we really want. So then we're never happy. So then we get in a cycle of never being happy. And we think it's the, the, our education or our looks or our location that are determining our outcomes. And what's determining our outcomes is we don't know what we want. So we're never going to be happy with those. So we have to work with leaders and people and we have to look inside ourselves and figure out what we want near term, you know, short term and long term and work towards those goals. And when people do that, those are the happiest people, the most contented people, the people who are giving back in their life um, that you're ever going to meet. Right. Right. That's so true. That's so true. I love that. What do you want? And just being really, really clear about that. Um, you have a new book coming out uh, uh, very shortly called Uniquely You, which we're really excited about. And um, and you go more into your story and some practical advice. But I'd love to hear just if there's somebody right now who is maybe living inauthentically, who is in that space that you were in of, I am terrified that people are going to find out who I really am or what my limitations are, or if I even have a right to be here. What are maybe three practical things that you would tell somebody right now who's feeling that way to help them um, be more authentic in their work and in their life? Tell your story. So if you, um, I, I like to believe that there are people around you that trust you, that you trust, that love you, that you can tell your honest story to. And sometimes it's hard, you know, um, Brene Brown, who's just incredible, you know, Brene Brown starts out with essentially, here's what I'm feeling or here's what, what my mind's telling me. Um, and I begin that way a lot with, hey, I'm probably off on a deep end here somewhere, but here's what I'm feeling or hearing or I'm sensing. But begin the story with, let me tell you something that scares me. And I want you to know this about me. If you don't have somebody in your life, you can do that. There are anonymous places you can write those stories to you. There's lots of places you can get feedback in a safe environment. And don't do it on some troll website where people are going to be ugly. But find some place that you can tell that story to. Because what you're going to find is your worst fears are so far from reality that if the person really loves you, the first thing they're going to do is either metaphorically or for real, give you a hug and say, you know, that's uh, not so bad. Here's here's what mm -hmm. that looks, same thing looks like in my life. So you've got to be willing to be vulnerable because it the negativity is in your head. First thing is most people aren't thinking that much about you, so they're not really going to judge you that much. And the second thing is, you're the one who's tied your boat to the dock so tight that you can't take it out into the lake. And so you got to cut those ropes. You got to get away from the dock. The second thing is, as if these things are still real in your life, um, you know, for me, um, the real part of that is I've always struggled with my weight because food was always an issue growing up. It was either really poor quality food or um, or there just wasn't enough. And so I've always, you know, manifested, you know, my fear becomes I eat too much or I eat uh, bad food. 
And so I, I've always struggled with that. And I continue to struggle with that. So acknowledge where your behaviors are manifesting and holding you back. And then the third one is, you know, and this is a safe place to talk about it, is that, um, you know, you got to get with God. And, um, you know, for me, that means every day prayers of appreciation. Yeah. And, uh, and I sometimes I have to I'm a list maker. So on Tuesdays, I have a whole list of people I pray for the people that work with me. I, by name, I pray for each one of them. And I talk about something I appreciate about them and in speaking um, my appreciation. But what I find is whenever I keep my appreciation higher than my expectation, my day is pretty incredible. And so thanking God, but then also asking that my faith get bigger. I am, uh, you know, I'm, I don't ever want my success to grow larger than my faith. Nehemiah is my favorite book in the Bible. It's my favorite story. But it's, you know, it's about a leader who has all kinds of challenges thrown at him, good challenges and bad challenges, but he stays true to his work. And uh, and that for me is what I have to do in my life. But I only can do that if I stay close to God and stay close to um, my faith on a daily basis. And uh, and that, you know, is something that in a busy world we forget about. You know, prayer becomes what we do around the dinner table, you know, at, uh, at night, blessing our meal. And uh, that's not who we're hardwired to be as humans. We need a solid relationship with God and uh, where you can admit your fears and your challenges um, in an open way with him. It's mm, so good. It's so good. And again, the name of the book is uniquely you by Ron kitchens and it's, uh, coming out shortly. It will probably be out by the time this airs. Um, and Ron, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your testimony with us. I know that there's going to be people listening to this who maybe have been feeling like they don't quite measure up. And hopefully my hope and my prayer and my belief is that, um, that your testimony is going to help them to feel like they can get up and get going and that really anything is possible. So um, in Christ. So I just want to say thank you so much for your generosity. Oh, thank you, Don. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And again, the name of the book is Uniquely You. I'm going to uh, include links to where everyone can find that in the show notes. And Ron, thanks so much. I'd like to thank my guest, Ron Kitchens, for joining me today. Just a reminder that you can access the show notes for today's episode, as well as where to find Ron online at donsadler.com slash 029. If you'd like to hear more conversations with Christians who are finding purpose, redefining work, and changing their world, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. The Your Purpose is Calling podcast is brought to you by Avada Christian Coaching. Sign up for our free weekly coaching emails at avadacoaching.com slash subscribe. This has been the Your Purpose is Calling podcast. I'm your host, Don Sadler. Thanks for listening.